Hi, I'm Chris Steierwald, and this is The Hangover, a limited-run podcast from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years, from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to overturn the election, and the siege of the U.S. Capitol? And what comes next? There's a little zelig in John Podhoretz. He appears again and again in the story of the birth of the modern conservative movement and the right-wing media. He has worked at nearly every big-time right-of-center outlet and can count as friends, and sometimes foes, many of the luminaries of American public life in the past four decades. I was thrilled when my friend agreed to join us for a survey of the birth, growth, and decay of the conservative media as we knew it. As they say, he's got the receipts. Our conversation was just as I expected rollicking, expansive, and insightful, just like our guest himself. John, thank you for being with us. A pleasure. Well, I will confess, since it would it will be evident anyway, that I've most been looking forward to this part uh, of The Hangover and talking to you, because it's not only... Not only are you just fun uh, and and have lived it and seen it and know it, but talking about the media is fun because it doesn't count, right? We're <laughs> we're we we're exempted. We we ink stained wretches are exempted from real responsibility in all things, as always, because hey, we were just talking about it. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Were you raised a Republican? No, I mean, to the extent I was raised anything, I guess I was raised a Democrat. I was in a family uh, when I was young. Uh, my Not only was my family Democratic, uh, but um, an organization of the Democratic Party of the 1970s called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority was, in fact, founded in my living room. Um, yeah, CDM, good. as it was known, uh, was an effort to... Um, uh, make war within the Democratic Party in the early 1970s against the rise of the new left from the center. Uh, and the idea was it was the Democratic majority, the silent majority, the classic group of people who would eventually come to be known as Reagan Democrats who were, you know, um, I guess you would call them very liberal on economic policy issues, but hawkish on foreign policy, anti-communist, pro-Israel, that sort of thing. So it was a, I was from a, a democratic household, though my parents, uh, my, my father in particular was on the, was on the very serious left around the time I was born in 1961 and then moved to the right over the course of the 1960s, became a founding neoconservative but was very much part of the Democratic Party. And indeed, one of the figures who was supposed to help save the Democratic Party for the center uh, was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was my father's closest friend and wrote uh, for the magazine that my father edited, Commentary. And my father played a very crucial role in Pat's 1976 Senate campaign in New York State, where he eventually became senator and then broke my father's heart by moving sharply to the left as a senator. But even that campaign itself was a key moment 
uh, because it seemed to suggest uh, Pat was running against, in particular, Bella Abzug, who was a con- who had been a, a congresswoman of the hard left, had herself been a figure in Stalinist front groups in the 1950s and 1960s. Oh, you're going to make that into a bad thing now. Oh, it's fine. A ter- it's a yeah. terrible. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so and unfair. so Pat beating her was a very significant fact in the narrative that was trying to be established, which is that the Democratic Party was moving too far to the left. Jimmy Carter was a figure not of the left. Pat was a figure not of the left. And yet the the late 70s, Pat's own career, Carter's own career proved that the direction of the Democratic Party was unstoppable, that the, the drift of the Democratic Party was unstoppable and so people like my my parents eventually threw their hand in with the rising Reagan tide in the you know in the early 80s late very late 70s early 80s this is imprecise but you i'm sure can relate to your father's experience better now watching republicans go through the opposite thing in reverse right uh well, is there I some of that people, for you right well there much less for me, I think, let's take another example of a prominent neoconservative family, the Crystals. So Irvin Crystal, who was 10 years older than my father, Bill Crystal is 10 years older than me. Irving and my father were, Irving had worked at Commentary Magazine, which my father had edited. Uh, they were longtime friends and kind of almost like relatives, relations. Um, and uh, Bill Crystal and I started the weekly standard together were very old very close friends bill uh in his in the iteration that has followed the trump election um has moved pretty sharply in almost neoconservativized in the other direction i mean he is effectively now he's supporting nominations of people that i oppose like colin call the uh the the foreign policy official, you know, he supported Mira Tandon's nomination to the Office of Management and Budget. He's effectively become part, it's not, I consider myself part of the loyal opposition to Biden. He's more now sort of like a kind of fellow traveler of Biden. So Bill took this journey much more precisely in parallel to the neoconservatives than I have. How old were you, if you ever have or ever did, when you started to think of yourself as a Republican? Um, well, I, I was always fr- from the time that I sort of attained political consciousness in school, you know, in like junior high school or high school, uh, I was always a countercultural figure where I was. As I say, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I went to a New York City private school and I didn't like hippie culture. I didn't like 70s culture. I didn't like drugs, you know, free drugs. I didn't like sexual libertinism. This is as a as a as a kid and I I felt very much like the actual counterculture to the counterculture, which is to say the counterculture, the 60s counterculture had become by the time I was 15 or 16 the culture of the world that I lived in. Do you think if you'd been living in Kansas, do you think you would have been a you would have gone the other way to rebel against what was around you? Are you an are you iconoclastic by nature? Well, I don't know, because on the one hand, I was iconoclastic by nature, and on the other hand, I was very much following in the footsteps of my own family. So I don't know that I can claim iconic that much iconoclasm, right? Because it's not as though 
uh, I was rebelling against everything. You know, I was kind of joining a, a band of countercultural figures, some of whom were in who were my my parents. So, so but so I, it added, I, yeah, it, it was you were both aligned with the values of your family but also a frisson of danger or excitement was added to your political journey because you were rebelling against what was around you. Oh, very much so. And in fact, and in fact, I, I, I heartily recommend this combination to people. It, not that anyone can invent such a combination, but um, uh, keeping yourself at a distance from the conventional consensus of the social circles in mm-hmm. which you travel um is a great liberation uh it's, it's, it's never been hard for me okay fair <laughs> enough but i'm just saying it's it's very yes. very hard for most people right who I, th- don't I think a, wanna... a good ru- a good rule of thumb that i have always found is if you are completely comfortable in where you are and what you're doing you're doing it wrong you right. should be pushing yourself out a little bit of where you are so that you feel the that t- the, the 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 sting of the electric fence. Okay, so but answer the question. Were you when did you ever say I am a Republican or I identify with the Republican party? I mean, I guess I did in the sense that like I I became in the in the I I went to work uh, in the Reagan administration in okay, the last counts, year John. as a speechwriter. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would count joining but, a Republican administration. Yes, yes. but I, I'll say this, which is that I always thought of myself as a conservative, okay, uh, uh, not as a Republican. And I voted my first election in 1980. I voted for Ronald Reagan, but I would not say I voted for Ronald Reagan even as a conservative per se. I mean, I just, I thought Carter was terrible and that he had driven the country, you know, into terrible play. He was incompetent and that, you know, uh, Desert won the horrible failed rescue mission against for the Iranian hostages, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, all kinds of things that it was just inflate he had to go i mean that was my my thought and that i i happily voted for reagan but at the time if you'd asked me what i was i would have said i was a democrat at that that point if if uh as a kid as really as a kid i mean just to give you a sense of how insane life was where i was when i was seven years old seven years old on election day 1968 I was standing in front of Macy's on 34th Street in Herald Square handing out Humphrey literature. (laughs) Okay? That wasn't because my parents took me there, by the way. Oh, wow. You were weirder than I was. It's very weird. I had gone to to the Upper West Side Democratic Club and said I wanted to volunteer, and I was tall. And so they didn't know I was seven, and they handed me literature, and I got on the subway, which I had been riding by myself. Again, my parents were crazy people and let a seven-year-old ride by themselves in the subway during the New York City crime wave and got off in front of Macy's and handed out campaign literature. So that was my first political experience, was handing out campaign literature in front of Macy's on Election Day 1968. Yours is better than my huge political child nerd story, which was being at summer camp and asking for permission to watch television so I could watch George H.W. Bush's 1988 
convention speech and they were like i guess you can if you want to <laughs> i was like yeah that'd be great so i sat by myself in a large darkened hall at culver uh, military academy summer camp to watch uh the 88 convention okay so we've established your bona fides you served in a republican administration as a young man when did you first think of yourself as a journalist when did you first think of yourself as a newsman um I became a I became a working political journalist in my early twenties. Let me just give you like the, the, yeah, the yeah, rundown yeah. is that when in my late teens I started publishing for the public prints. I was writing movie reviews for the American Spectator magazine. I wrote a couple of things for Harper's. And this is American American Spectator in those days was published out of Indiana and that Bloomington, was Indiana. Emmett yeah, Tyrrell. Yeah, uh, Bob Tyrrell was the uh, founder and editor. Um, it was then, um, this was a couple of decades before it became this center focus of anti-Clinton investigative reporting. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. much more like a kind of commentary junior yeah. or National Review junior. It was, uh, and, uh, and so I became its movie critic in, while I was in college. And I was writing about cultural matters, fiction, movies, theater, stuff like that in my early 20s. And then when I was 23, I became a cultural columnist for the Washington Times. And I moved to Washington to become a cultural columnist for the Washington Times. And then very quickly thereafter, became an editor at the Washington Times, which is a very chaotic place and therefore uh, provided a lot of opportunities if you like had your eyes open. By, and by the way, that's good advice for every young journalist who wants to get in it. No, I'm serious. It's it, it sounds good that you want to go to the big prestigious place, but there are a lot of there are a lot of redeeming features to being someplace that either starting up or chaotic or a little upside down because you might just get a chance to 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 shoot shoot for the moon. Totally. So I'm 23 and a half years old. And on election day, 1984, I worked the night. I was I was then editing, uh, or one of the editors of the of the cultural section of the paper. But I worked the night desk on election night. We were doing work was called replating. We were replating the paper over and over and over again. And um, I remember vividly that uh, two front pages were presented uh, for the 1984 election, um, you know, one that said Reagan wins and one that said Mondale wins. And when somebody held up the Mondale wins paper, everybody burst into gales of laughter because <laughs> yeah, by yes. that point it was sort of known that Mondale had no chance. I mean, I don't think anybody realized the immensity of the victory that Reagan was going to win, but it was clear that he had no chance and somebody very archly said, you know, you laugh now, but that, you know, it's, things happen. And one day people are going to report about that laugh and say that, you know, people didn't really know what was going on in this country, which, of course, turned out not to be true. <laughs> yeah, but that, that so, didn't turn out to be a yeah, problem. Right. But I was so my so I did I did work that night, I worked the night of the election of 1984, and I did go to New Orleans to cover the. Democratic Convention in 1984, um, even though I was not yet really then writing that much about politics. And then just sort of as time went on, it became more and more of a topic. I ended up totally haphazardly 
as a Reagan speechwriter. Let's say I, I I went to work at U.S. News and World Report. I didn't like it. I quit. Okay, so this is so so, it, w- and we have to get to 2020. So I want I want to, I want to compress. I yes. want to compress a little Let's bit just to that. say yeah. just to say this: the media landscape that you entered as a young man was the conservative voices were insurgent and almost strictly insurgent. The uh, National Review had existed uh, since the 50s. Uh, There was the American Spectator. The arrival of the Washington Times was considered a a thing because it was the first newspaper in the United States that was launched or founded with the principle that it would be have a conservative point of view. There was there was no Fox News. There was uh, AM there radio. There was no talk radio as yet. Because the Fairness Doctrine had shut it down. It had been there in the 60s and it had been shut down uh, by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. So there's, there's in this landscape, it was very much, again, with this theme of countercultural for you, that you were part of an insurgent rising uh, conservative media. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. And it was, yes. And it was somewhat unpleasant. Remember, I, you know, when I said this thing about, uh, being a counterculture figure in the world in which you traveled. So there I was, I was a guy in Washington, friends, you know, social world and all of this. And it was unpleasant to go out socially and work at the Washington Times for two reasons. One of which was it was conservative. The other was it was owned by the Moonies. And and so uh, people had, it was openly acceptable to be scornful, unpleasant, condescending, or outright insulting when you said you worked for the Washington Times. So you had two choices under those circumstances, one of which would be to be self-pitying, defensive, or decide you had to get out of this as soon as possible because this wasn't what you wanted with your life, was to work in an atmosphere in which the people that you hung out with or the women you wanted to date or anything like that were contemptuous of the place that you worked. Or you basically said, up yours. Yeah. Where you know a what? Up yeah. yours. You don't know what we're doing. You don't read what we're writing. You don't know what we're saying. And you know what? And this was a thing that Jonah Goldberg and I used to say together in d- different ways. You are monolingual. You speak liberal, and you know liberal, and you know the world that you live in. I'm bilingual. I speak conservative, and I, I, I'm fluent in you, and I'm fluent in the rules, mm-hmm. values, ideas, and stuff of conservatism. I'm better than you. I know more than you. I am more sophisticated than you. You're provincial. I am worldly. And that was something in my mid-20s that I could hold up in my own head as a badge of honor. And and, uh, years later, when I got to the Washington Examiner or when I got to Fox, there was a premise that said that my point of view on this stuff was, I'm not saying... Uh, that this publication or this organization doesn't have a conservative worldview. What I'm saying is, so do you have your own worldview and we're just as good as you, right? We're just as good as you. You, Washington Post, the Washington Examiner is just as legitimate and you, CBS News, Fox News is just as legitimate as you. And that was sort of the, you wear it like a badge. You say, this is this, this is me. Okay, so uh, Washington Times, uh, U.S. News, Reagan administration speechwriter in the uh, at the end, and then when uh, then what do you do? Then I went back to the Washington Times. I was there for a couple of years, and then I quit and wrote. A, and at this point, I was thirty, 
And I realized that I actually knew quite a lot about politics and that since I'd had this experience of seven months in the Reagan administration and friends of mine were working in the first Bush administration and were telling me, some of my closest friends were telling me these horror stories about how bad things were going in the White House, um, I had this idea for a book, which eventually I wrote called Hell of a Ride, which was about the decline and fall of the first Bush administration, which I was contracted to write at the beginning of 1992. And the idea behind the book was to tell the story of an administration in crisis from the perspective of people who had never been the subjects of journalistic portraiture before, which was mid-level staffers, people I wasn't Bob Woodward. I wasn't talking to, you know, the president and the cabinet secretaries. I was talking to my friends, the people that I knew who actually ran the White House, you know, who were like, if there was an event, they were the ones who staffed it. They were the ones who wrote the speeches for it. They were the ones who advanced it. They were the ones who did it. And they were being torn apart by these clueless people Two, one or two levels above them who had no idea what they were doing, even though they were the powers uh, that were. And uh, funnily enough, um, this book, which came out in the late 1993, um, 10 years later, everybody at the West Wing was eff- effectively issued my book. So writing a successful book as a young journalist establishes your your cred, right? That you are you this makes you uh in demand and it and it also establishes you as a political journalist in a way that maybe you weren't even before. Well I didn't think of it and I was also very conscious of the fact that I my my father was a very prominent commentator on political matters. And so I had sort of veered into culture largely so that I would have my own field to plow and that I wouldn't look like I was, you know, sort of being a copycat. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote this a book which had a, a, an entirely different quality to it. It was it was repertorial but impressionistic, and as and it was uh, a new kind of look at at a political phenomenon that people would then later come to know from the West Wing and others and Veep. I mean, West Wing and Veep are I, I, whether whether they were influenced by Hell of a Ride. West Wing was a little bit. I don't know about Veep. But uh, that perspective, like what on earth it's like to work, you know, kind of like shoveling the elephant dung at a circus (laughs) aspect of politics was something that I, you know, I had found my my way to. And then and then I I had this moment in my early 30s where I thought, well, why can't I write about politics? Why everybody else does. Right, right, right. Uh, And by the way, this is an interesting one difference about in terms of the press which is that um, I was self-conscious about this, as I say, partially because of my family, but also because I thought this is very serious stuff. And I just didn't feel like I knew enough necessarily. I could commit, I could edit, I could commission articles from famous people or academics or writers. And I had, uh, you know, I knew, I knew a lot as a generalist. Um, But I thought, well, writing about movies is one thing, but writing about the most important things on earth is another. And, you know, you really needed to know your stuff to do it. And um, so I had a modesty about it that I, I notice now, and I notice really from the moment that blogging started, is entirely absent. Like 17-year-olds, you know. Don't skip ahead to blogging yet. Yeah, I'm sorry. But I'm just saying, like, 
So I really only started writing or thinking about myself as a political journalist or even as a political editor in my early 30s. Okay. So this also happens In the to 90s. Be, yeah. I was going to say, this also happens to be, you know, you can, there's a period of time, you will say 93 to 99, where cable news, Fox launches in 96. Uh, you have the Fairness Doctrine has been repealed and talk radio. The Clinton administration allows Rush Limbaugh talk radio to really flourish, right? There is, there's ample uh, subject matter to cover. And because of your book and other books like it, there was a, I know this is true. My father voted for Perot in 1992, right? There was a resentment against George H.W. Bush, and and the grievance was that he wasn't really conservative. He cared too much about the spotted owls. He didn't care enough about the loggers and, you know, all, all of that stuff. And the new right really takes shape. And you're right there on the front row. The new right, to what degree? So we've got Fox. We have the birth of the Internet. And you mentioned blogging, and you've got the the reanimation of talk radio. Describe for people who don't remember or weren't there, what was the vibe? What did it feel like to be a, a what was the media landscape like? Okay, so the real moment, the real transition moment was the election of ninety four. November of ninety four. Republicans win fifty two seats in the House and take the House and the Senate, take the House for the first time in forty years. There have been Democratic control of the House uninterrupted since 1954, first time in 40 years. And um, suddenly everything happened all at once. Uh, One big thing was that the week before the election, Bill Crystal and I sat down and and I said to him, you know, there's a magazine here. Because people sort of knew that Republicans were going to win the election. And it was like, there's a magazine here to be started that would be like when the New Republic started in 1913, 1914 as the voice of the progressive era. There's going to be something like the Gingrich era. We should start a magazine to be that magazine of this New Republican era. And then basically about four or five months later, we went to Rupert Murdoch and he said, I'm in. I was working at the New York Post at the time as the TV critic for the Post. Bill knew Rupert. We went to him. He said, fine. And basically, by September of 95, we were up and running. Um, The other thing that happened, so that's my personal thing, but that should give you a sense. It's like everything was different. And the minute that the election was won, before there was a conservative counterculture in journalism, the the dominant media culture went, uh-oh, we missed this. We didn't know this was coming. What on earth is going on? Suddenly, Tom Brokaw is taking Laura Ingram out to lunch. The New York Times, James Atlas is writing about us in the New York Times magazine. Um, MSNBC starts and has every young journalist on the right in the world go in in a sweater and a, and a, and a T-shirt to play they were going to cast, they were going to have their entire lineup be conversations with people who somehow resembled the cast of Friends. They were called mm-hmm. the MSNBC mm-hmm. Friends. Mm-hmm. And every young liberal and conservative journalist in New York and in Washington sort of like paraded through Fort Lee, New Jersey, <laughs> where <laughs> MSNBC was located, to have these conversations as a friend. Um 
At this moment, by the way, Roger Ailes was not yet at at Fox. He was running CNBC and then another network that turned into MSNBC called America's Talking, which which was a kind of weird, who knows why it existed, but it was kind of like a chrysalis version of Fox, but without politics. It was really not not very political. But suddenly we were hot. We had never been hot in the 1980s. If the Washington Post talked about the Washington Times, it called it a journalistic entity, not a newspaper. There was a lot of contempt. <laughs> just Oh, man. There was just a huge amount of contempt. And then suddenly we were hot and they wanted us, right? They wanted us and they we were being taken out to dinner and people were, it was sort of like, what's the secret sauce? Stuff is going on here. So here and we're the, talking about yeah. the period of time in the run-up to the 94 midterms where the Republicans take yeah, back right. the House. After, after, right. And then leading up until, what, the Clinton impeachment? Is that when? Yes. That's a very good, right. So so 95, the Weekly Standard starts, MSNBC starts. There's all this hot, young Republican energy in Washington. Uh, the And... Um, and Bill Clinton begins his 1996 State of the Union address by saying the era of big government is over. Right? I mean, 95 was politically very complicated. Gingrich massively overplayed his hand, shut the government down. Oklahoma City, Clinton very cleverly used against the right to say the right was too extreme, all of that. And then there was huge economic growth in the first quarter of 1996 that assured Clinton's reelection. But Clinton moved to the right in 1996, supported welfare reform, said the Arab government was over. And all of this looked like, and the Weekly Standard was a wild success at the moment it started, looked like we were the vanguard of the future. And then came 1998 and the impeachment and two big changes, right? One was the Drudge Report. Newsweek spiked its story on Lewinsky. Somebody got the Lewinsky story to Matt Drudge and Drudge ran it, though Newsweek had spiked it. That was the first moment that the, it became clear that the internet was going to destroy conventional journalism entirely, that there was no such thing as the gatekeeper that was going to keep the story that was embarrassing to the liberal out of the newspaper. That's why the smart move, if you were graduating from college in 1997, was to become a newspaper reporter. That's what I did. I took the <laughs> Genius. I took the, took the smart play. I that said, that's, was that's such, what I need to do. That was Forward a money looking. move. That was a money move. While <laughs> you were doing that, I will tell you this, while you were doing that, Andy Ferguson, Chris Caldwell, and I, and somebody, we all went, we had lunch one day, people from the Standard, and we talked about all of the people that we had gone to college with who were on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And everybody that we knew was on Wall Street was now buying an island in the Caribbean. And we're like, what did we do? Why are we doing this? What are we sitting here writing articles for? We're so stupid. You know, these are people we had contempt for in college, and they can buy and sell us. How did this happen? And you're becoming a newspaper reporter. I know. And, but I was banking that $250 a week, buddy. I was putting <laughs> that right in the bank. Uh, okay, but here's my point that I was going to make. So, yeah, yeah. so Matt Drudge comes along. Lewinsky happens. 
cable news is made by Lewinsky. The cable, the MSNBC and, and Fox in particular are made by Lewinsky Gate. Mm-hmm. As we see it, eight the show special of, report. The uh, just right. for context on that, the show special report that Brett Hume anchored and then Brett Baer took over was called special report because it was a evening show that they, a special that they put on to cover the Lewinsky scandal and impeachment. Right, but I mean, it was eighteen hours a day of Lewinsky. I mean, it was 18 hours a day of Lewinsky from January, late January 1998 through almost the end of 1998. And it began to become clear to liberal liberals in America that there was no co-opting the right, that this idea that they could make a nice and we would come in and we just wanted a seat at the table and we would be nice and cooperative and friendly and all of that. That wasn't going to happen, and and that not, not to sort of jump way forward, but that was that was the moment at which it became clear that there were re- was a real clash of values here. It wasn't just different politics. How much? So this is what I want to get to here. So I think anybody who is anybody who's weird enough to be interested uh, in what we're talking about right now understands that you have this new dawn if, uh, of the media landscape changes. How much of that was the fact that conservative voices had not found purchase uh, in the mainstream media ever uh, prior to that, and that as barriers to entry lowered, as technology and regulatory rules made barriers to entry less, you didn't have to buy a printing press, how much of that was uh, just the fact that con- that the right was what had been underserved and that's what was going to break through? Do you think that's what it was? I think that was part of it. I mean, I think if you sort of look over the course of the 20, almost 25 years since Matt Drudge exploded on the scene, um, uh, you can say that the right was underserved and therefore the right had this great you know, success. Even before Matt Drudge, Rush Limbaugh pulled interesting... Rush Limbaugh was a very early person on the worldwide... Or not the web, I don't know what we called it before then. But uh, there was a hilarious thing that Rush Limbaugh did in like 91, 92, where there was a chat group, a chat room on AOL devoted to animal rights and Limbaugh sent his people into the animal rights chat room to destroy it. And they began putting up recipes for making raccoon stew and and this and that. (sighs) And eventually basically the animal rights people fled because they had been overtaken. So this is the first, the first internet troll. Exactly. And it was funny. It was really, really, really funny because they were so um, serious, like because they the, the people who were trolled didn't know what hit them. And they were so pompous and serious and outraged and shocked. And this was playful. It wasn't, you know, I may was, or may not very, have yes. had I may or may not have had in college a T-shirt that said, I love animals. They taste great. I may right. or may not have had right. that. No, yes. Right. I so, feel you. So I'm just saying, even before the right was conscious that there was some, there was this world, there was this new media world in which the rules had not been, the gatekeepers had not come in and thrown up barriers to them. 
And they seeded it all over the place. And there was, of course, a very libertarian tinge to early internet culture in general that favored the libertarian right, not the religious right, not the old right, but the kind of libertarian, you liberals are humorless with your PETA and your this and your that, and you, you hate guns. And we're, you know, we're, we're freewheeling, fun-loving. We don't like bike helmets. We don't like motorcycle helmets. We don't like seatbelts. We don't like speed limits. We don't like all of these rules that you're imposing on us. And they really, they really gave internet culture its early character that was very libertarian, right libertarian. Is it fair to say that conservatives have done better if we look back over the last 25 years? I think this is so. That conservatives have done better at exploiting new media, the internet particularly, than liberals? Yes, until. Uh-huh. until it became a big business. And when it became a big business, the liberals came in and not only took it over, but they kind of destroyed it at the same time. I mean, uh, Josh Marshall, who runs a very left-wing site called Talking, uh, Talking Points Media, TPM, uh, Josh started TPM as a, as a solo proprietor. It's a small, it was a small site. And he started making a little bit of money off it. He has a very good piece in The Atlantic about how uh, internet publishing, like the world of internet journalism, self-destructed. And he he attributes it to people going, ooh, there's a lot of money in here. And they all happen to be kind of left-wingers. So Salon, one of the first internet publications literally tried to go public in the late 90s, like wanted to use the modality, it was based in San Francisco, wanted to use the modalities of the IPO to make itself money. It never really worked. But uh, this was seeded then, you know, Ariana Huffington started the Huffington Post. She moved, she shifted radically to the right. Eventually she sold it to AOL for $300 million. <laughs> and suddenly, right, and suddenly there was this like mad, crazy, like, um, you know, a venture capital rush into the into the internet space that ultimately, in this weird thing, ended up empowering Google and Facebook, and uh, and nobody else. And basically, they came in, they hired a lot of people, they threw a lot of money around, and by the end, as this as it is now crashing, and all these sites that made hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital money, Huffington Post, Vice, I don't know. Vox, all these things are basically there's no there's no revenue to be had, and all the revenue was eaten up by Facebook and Google, and 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 they're all dead. So when it was when it was a small solo proprietor, entrepreneurial business, it very much empowered the right. When when it became the late the next big thing in how to like monetize journalism. The left vastly outdistanced us. Nobody got the money. Nobody raised that kind of money. Vox got $400 million or something like that in a credit line. I couldn't have gone out and gotten $2 million in a credit line. I'd started three publications by this point. It didn't matter. That wasn't you the way three these publications. Went. What were your three publications? Uh, I started uh, Insight at uh, okay. the Washington Times. I started something called the Republican Facts Wire, which was an early, early version of. The Dispatch, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, kind of, and then I started the Weekly Standard. But if I'd gone out and tried to raise venture capital, it would have been well. But these were all your f- guy that was your roommate at Harvard, who is now at 
who is now at, uh, you know, at the uh, Starpoint Capital on Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto, who, you know, saw, uh, you know, and then he, he and your other friends from Elliott House threw in some money and suddenly you had a credit line and all this. That didn't happen on the right. I mean, this is sort of interesting. Well, and uh, so here's a question. Before we leave this this era, the the Weekly Standard held itself to a very high journalistic standard um, that you and Bill, uh, I think of Fred Barnes, I think of, you know, a very high standard, a well-edited, uh, rigorous process. I think of the standard that Britt Hume brought to Fox, very high standard, and basically have to be better than the other guys because we're going to be judged more harshly. But on the other hand, if you're running an insurgency, and if you say, as many people do, well, look, the deck stacked against us, so maybe we're going to have to cut some corners here, and maybe this journalism stuff's kind of dumb. Uh, and do you think that there that the 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 insurgent quality of conservative media uh, created a slippy standard for the kind of journalism that was going to be done? I think we were. Um, uh, I would say. We were still being conservatives. We believe in institutions and we still believed in institutional uh, standards of excellence, let's say, or institutional safeguards or whatever you want to call them. And that maybe was our mistake. Like that, that there was a naivete there, uh, uh, which I think mirrors the naivete of the Jeb Bush campaign or the Marco oh. Rubio campaign yeah, or yeah, stuff yeah. like that, where you didn't really know, you didn't really understand the ways in which the rules were changing. I'll give you, just to use Fox as an example, in 2010, Roger Ailes looks and he says, you know what, Glenn Beck is going too far. He is He's the highest rated guy on my network. He is killing it. I think I got to get rid of him because this is going in a place I don't really understand and and... The risk is not worth the reward to the entire institution. Five years later, that would, be, would have been a choice he would never have made. He would never, ever have made that choice in 2015 because the institutions themselves were no longer important. I don't, well, I, I... That's my... I, okay, you can argue I, with it, but I, that's why I'm just asserting that as a... I, I, I think that... One of the great tragedies of 21st century America uh, is Roger Ailes, right? Uh, that's a, and you can't talk about any of this stuff if, if you don't acknowledge, uh, what did they call him? The loudest voice in the room. Yeah. Uh, and Roger's reinvention of, conser- he hired me in 2010. Uh, his reinvention of conservative media, his re- like what he taught the murder, all the stuff that he did. And as I have said many times, it is really unfortunate that he was such a monster in his personal life and, and the things that he did for the, the things that he did for himself and his own problems, because you point to Glenn Beck, if he did, if he wouldn't have done it in 2015, it would have be, been because he was already collapsed, right? He, right. he had, he right. had, he, he himself had already fallen apart because of his problems and dealing with the Murdochs and his personal problems and, and problems with them. But certainly he understood prior to unhorsing himself that you, I believe it was him who made the joke about Glenn Beck. The problem with uh, predicting the end of the world is that sooner or later you have to deliver. 
and right. the the apocalyptic and it was the Obama administration. It was the it was the election of Barack Obama that unleashed. Let's just let tell us about that so we can get get up to 2016. So how did the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and the beginning of the Obama administration changed the conservative media landscape. Okay, so Obama wins this landslide, and uh, uh, ve- something very interesting happens, right? I mean, he's got 60 seats in the Senate. Uh, he won by eight points or nine points. I can't even remember. Nine points, yep. Nine points. Um, you know, he's rolling like no one has ever rolled before. And uh, this guy goes on CNBC one day when a proposal is floated in the paper to suspend moratorium payments on people's monthly mortgage payments. And this guy who was a, you know, a hedge fund guy in in Connecticut says 92% of people are making their mortgage payments, 8% or not. They're going to suspend mortgage payments to support these 8% of people who are deadbeats when 92% of people are moving heaven and earth to fulfill their legal obligations. This is horrible. This is not America. This is why there was a tea party. His name was Santelli, Rick, Rick Santelli. Santelli. And he said, I'm going to, he was at the Chicago, you're not the first of our guests to reference uh, Rick's rant that he go, that he said, I'm going to go down. He was in Chicago. He said, I'm going to go down to Lake Michigan, I'm going to throw all of my bonds into Lake Michigan because they're worthless now because nothing counts. So, 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 so we so have the launch so, of the Tea so, Party. So the Tea Party launches as a as a completely organic grassroots entity. It's the most remarkable, in some ways, the most remarkable political event of my lifetime. With the aside from the ascension of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, comes out of nowhere organizes itself in an almost mystical fashion, gets going, and there are these two parallel tracks in American life. Obama is cruising to Obamacare, to $2.5 trillion of new spending in 14 months, with the exception of the unfortunate, in his case, not, I think, in the case of history and fairness and all the death of Teddy Kennedy, um, you know, would have sort of had no, it really would have been just a total skate, uh, goes through, and and uh, he is doing everything, getting everything, and he's God, according to Evan Thomas and all of this. And meanwhile, the right is organizing itself in an entirely new fashion from, from the bottom up rather than the top down. And there is this shellacking, right, in 2010. Mm-hmm. And some of us looked at this and said, this is really remarkable. Look, they're walking around. They're walking around with constitutions in their pockets. They have rallies, and they clean up after the rallies. Uh, they're everything you would want an insurgent movement to be. They're polite. They're respectful. They don't curse. They keep clean. They do all of this stuff, right? And 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 it looks great. And they're coming. And people come into Washington. And then it turned out again that uh, that was a veneer that we I think totally misunderstood the political impact of this, which was these people were coming to Washington and what they thought they were supposed to do was blow up Washington, not stop Obama, not put things on a more even keel, but blow up Washington. And they were going to be much more attracted to the stuff that everybody I knew was like, what are you crazy enough with the craziness? Like he was born in Kenya. He was born in Kenya. He's a secret Muslim. He's a Manchurian candidate for Osama bin Laden, whatever. And, you know, idiot, 
idiot right wingers like me are saying, "Oh, please, what?" And little did I understand that I was the one who was out of touch, and that this was the real message. This was the thing that was going to grip people. It wasn't going to be. Let's do an autopsy and figure out how to expand out the Republican reach to voters who aren't voting for us. That that there was there was this these these two tracks and that attacking Obama was going to take on this entirely different quality once the Tea Party had won and was going to pull the Republican Party in a direction that uh, was completely mystifying. To a lot of us, you well, know, by the conservative, it's uh, a preference for culture issues is not endemic to conservatives. Liberals are that way too, right? Liberal. It is also true that that you can get a lot more clicks and a lot more action talking about Black Lives Matter than you can talking about uh, Medicaid uh, enrollment expansion, right? Social wedge issues, cultural issues hit harder; they hit stronger. And more deeply. But my assessment is that you had fiscal conservative people who were of that libertarian mold you described earlier, who were fiscally conservative, who accepted in the conservative media the ride along from people who were sort of Buchananite, uh, cultural, like the Ann Coulter, the yeah, 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 okay, 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 yeah, and immigration too, and all this other stuff, accepting it as the ride along. And then you identify yourself as among them, the point where you realize, oh, I think maybe they've been driving the bus and I've been the one riding along. Or, 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 or it wasn't that they'd always been driving the bus because this is a dynamic process, right? Mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm. dynamic process. Obama could have been Clinton. Obama could have uh, redirected himself as a result of the 2010 election and moved to the center uh, and tried to co-opt the forces that uh, were threatening to swamp him. But first of all, he he was much more successful than Clinton in his first election. And second of all, he had not been the governor of a, of a Southern state. He was a one-term leftist, you know, left-winger from Chicago who kind of ascended to the presidency by means of a, you know, with, with very little experience. And so the dynamic process was, the 2010 election said stop, and he said no. Right. Or he said, I'll, or at least he said, I'm going to not budge. Yeah, I'm going to cross my arms and I'm going to sit right, right here. And he said no. And so the dynamic process was, but wait, we, we everybody wants, no, no, you didn't really win. You didn't win. And then in 2014, if you remember, Republicans win nine seats in the Senate. What does Obama say when they went? He says, well, only 33% of the electorate voted, so it doesn't really count. They won nine Senate seats, and Obama said it didn't count. So your juxtaposition is, whereas Clinton bled the line a little bit after 94 and triangulated and Dick Morris hung out at the Jefferson Hotel, uh, and all, and, and they, they figured out a way to co-opt Republican issues and take some of the pressure off, Obama did not make that move because he said he was going to break the fever in the Republican Party. And what and what Obama said was that Rush Limbaugh is the real leader of the Republican Party. And Obama was the one. And look, the Republicans screwed themselves up on their own. Uh, but Obama uh, definitely 
let's say, by elevating Donald Trump when, you know, Donald Trump, this grifter shows up and says, I want the long form birth certificate. uh, Obama could have said, you're he could have said nothing is what he could have said. He could have he could have he could have said not. But they made coffee mugs uh, that they sold with the long form birth certificate on it. Blah, 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 blah. How did. So this new this un. Obama didn't even pay him lip service. The, the frustration and anger is growing. Uh, Mitt Romney face plants. Um, Project Orca. Uh, uh, Project, Project Orca uh, stuffs Beaches, its blowhole. Beaches yeah, itself. Yeah. Yeah. Stuffs its blowhole. And it's no good. And Romney, Romney loses. And so this frustration now re-ups. And along the way, I can say as an observer and working at Fox and, and watching what's going on, Talk about the changes in the conservative landscape. We got Breitbart shows up. We've got other stuff that starts happening. Talk a little bit about that. Well, look, the key moment I think in understanding what 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 where the bifurcation took place. There are two moments. One was the shutdown of 2011, and the other was the shutdown of 2013. Mm-hmm. So, in the and that's the same of, thing Eric Kanner said to us recently. Absolutely. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, 2011 is like we're going to shut the government down, and uh, it made no sense because there was no end. There was no end game. Like there was no then what? Like what? People don't even remember why it happened. There was it was all had to do with raising the debt limit, and you know it was like no, we're not going to raise the debt limit. It's like really, I mean, it's going to have to get raised, or no one is going to get paid in the federal government. Like I don't know what you're talking about. Like millions of people are going to go broke. You know, it's not going to happen. Whatever. But we're going to shut the government down to show we can do it. 16 years after a government shutdown was catastrophic for the Republican Party. But fine, okay, so we're going to do it again. And then two years later, Ted Cruz does it a third time. And what's his plan? His plan is, he explained it to me, it was a four-part plan. Oh, I remember. The first part was this, and the second part was there's going to be a grassroots movement that was going to push, and then they were going to make them withdraw Obamacare. And so if you were somebody who sort of likes, interested in politics and how it works and all of this, you looked at this and you said, what the hell are you doing? This is stupid. (laughs) This is insane. Like, I don't, you're, this is, you know, you think you're smart. This is idiocy, right? And that, again, is a moment at which I think I fundamentally misunderstood how the gravity of politics had shifted, that it didn't matter that Ted Cruz blew it and that it was a ridiculous thing to do and all of that. He fought and he fought and he fought them and he stood there and he read green eggs and ham and he did whatever the hell it was he did. And that was enough. And the notion that you would say, don't pick fights that you can't win. You're going to be weakened. We had moved into a different realm where you're apparently not weakened when you lose, as long as you are fighting and that was the transition that should have told me when Donald Trump got into the race in June of uh, of 2015 that he was going to win. Talk about But how I hadn't understood it yet myself. You worked at the New York Post. You are a New Yorker. Talk about how Donald Trump played the media before, during, after. He was the it was the the, the virtuoso on the Stradivarius. Right, okay, but you know, the virtuoso on the Stradivarius, he was a virtuoso in the late 80s and early 90s. Right. So you should understand that for a lot of us, particularly us who worked in and around tabloids, his day was so long past, you can't even 
he dominated the papers in 1991 with his divorce and had took up with somebody and then it was the best sex that she That's ever had. That's the cover had. quote. Right. Okay. The New York, New York Post would quote best sex I ever had picture of Donald Trump. That's that's a pretty good get if you're a if you're if you're Trump. Twenty fifteen by twenty fifteen in our eyes he was a has been. Right. He was a second rank reality TV star, and at the time in the late eighties he seemed like he was going to be a central figure in New York because he was a builder and he'd done this. They'd done this skating rink, and he built it, did this and that, and then it turned out, but, and he came a cropper. He was not, you know, one of the things that people in real estate said to me when he was rising in the polls and stuff is, I don't get it. The guy has built four buildings in New York. Like, I can name you five other people who have built 15 buildings. He doesn't get, you know, he doesn't put money out. He doesn't do it. He doesn't play the game well. He's just a brander. It's all smoke and mirrors. But and whatever so he that was not, yeah. But whatever that was, he did know how to stay in the news. He did have fundamentally good instincts for how to stay in the news. Okay, but my sense of this is slightly different, which is that in beginning in 2011, when he jumped on the the birth on, on the birther bandwagon and stuff like that, he had then by this point been working with Roger Stone, who is a very brilliant, deranged, strange person, but very brilliant guy. And Stone saw something, again, that I don't think anybody else has seen, and no one has really written about this in the right way yet, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't know enough to really write about it, but I think I see it, which is, Stone said, there is a Republican proletariat that nobody sees. It's not Mm -hmm. the talk radio audience. That's a mistake. It's not the Rush audience, which is like, you know, small businessmen, salesmen, driving, or whatever. It's people who watch wrestling. And it's people who listen to Alex Jones. It's not Rush and Mark Levin and all this. People who then might go out and actually read the Constitution and talk about the Tenth Amendment. It is a it is a proletarian male, uneducated, you know, this white uneducated vote that consumes a lot of media, but it's not any of the media that we know. And Trump starts throwing chairs at Vince McMahon and going on Alex Jones and doing this and that and the other thing, and then eventually moving into this weekly phone gig on Fox and Friends, which of course is a step up, but is still a little less than, you know, a little less, not not the intellect, it's not special report, it's Fox and Friends. And by the time he enters the race, he's got four or five million people eating out of his hand that nobody ever calculated as part of the Republican base before. He comes in, he's got 20% in the polls before he even steps out. And it's not because they watch The Apprentice. And it's not, it's because he had been serving them up for five or six years invisibly to people like you and me. We weren't looking there. You're saying I don't watch wrestling? Roger was looking. You don't there. know. Yes. Okay, you were. <laughs> no, you I were. wasn't. I wasn't. I, look, I watched I watched wrestling when I was a teenager on Channel 47, which was a Spanish-language <laughs> channel at 1 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays because I didn't have a date. Like, I watched it, but I moved on. I was in my 50s already. So the conservative media initially opposes Trump, right? Everybody against Trump. National Review puts it on the cover. Everybody but Breitbart really seems like, and there's a strong vote, you know, you have from Charles Krauthammer to every, there is a, a uniform belief in two things that 
Donald Trump is a creep or a bad guy, but number two, that he would be disaster for the Republican Party, right? And the arguments mostly seem to be lodged in practical politics. The critiques of Trump in the press, yes, there are many. You are among them. Jonah is among them. There are many people, Krauthammer is among them, who said, even if it was successful, it would still be bad but because of what he stands for and cruelty and all this other stuff. But I'm right in assessing that, right? That at the beginning, or at least almost up until the convention, the conservative media that had grown up out of this hothouse that we described from the 1990s had matured and evolved over time, went back to its conservative roots and was going to be against Donald Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, what What was missing from our two things I think we're missing from our analyses. And again, this goes back to sort of like the fall of 2015 or even like to early 2016, end of 2015, early 2016. So Trump's at, you know, 21, 22%, 23%, something like that. Nobody else is like near him. But everybody I knew who was a political was like, he's going to fade. Yeah, it'll burn out. He's going to fade, right? He'll fade. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. But if you go back and you think about it, gets into the race and a month into the race, he's in, he's in the lead, right? I think it was a month in, in July, he... Jeb was at 13 or something. he gets higher, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember. I keep moving to the middle of the stage. Here I am. You pretty soon you're going to fall off the edge. <laughs> he never surrenders that lead, right? Never. Not, there was not a day that he wasn't in once he wire was in wire. first place. Right. Okay. Why didn't we, why didn't Occam's razor well, say to us, he's going to win? Because it didn't. It well, really I, didn't. Well, it well, Herman Cain led. Yeah. Uh, okay. Rick Perry led. Right, right. We had Patsy Cannon right. led. We have yeah. we have okay. lots of experience with people who are uh ambassadors from the Buchananite wing of the party, right? Uh, who are cultural conservatives first, uh, and oftentimes grievance conservatives. Uh, who, insofar as those two things are different. So we have a long track record of Rick Santorum at the Pizza Ranch. I yeah, remember I was at the, right. the the Pizza Ranch in Iowa, a Pizza Ranch restaurant in Iowa, uh, <laughs> when we were there to await the Duggar family, which is a family that had a reality show because they had like 20, I'm not kidding you, like 20 children. And uh, they came on a bus because I guess that's how you, tra- <laughs> you travel when you have 20 kids. And they showed up and it was this huge happening in Iowa. And I remember I was standing by the salad bar next to Mike Allen, and I just looked at him, and I was like, "This is stupid, right? I'm, am I? I'm, am I missing something here?" So that was our experience right. was Fair that enough. they burned okay. out. Okay, so but here's here's what I, what I'm thinking. So I was in, uh, unlike you, this was not my my general conventional thing to do, but I was in New Hampshire just before the New Hampshire primary because uh, National Review had an event, and I was there to talk at the National Review Crowd. We were watching the New Hampshire debate, the one where Marco Rubio blew himself up. And Chris right? Christie that on the suicide the, mission. Right, yeah. Chris Christie, yeah, went after him. Okay, so we were so sitting on the stage. We did this uh, intro event, and then we were watching, and then we were going to talk about it at halftime and during the commercial breaks and stuff like that. And this happens in the first three or four minutes. And um, what was interesting was 
as I'm sitting there, and a, a very good friend of mine was very, you know, like intimate with Rubio and was like backstage with Rubio, and my phone pings with a text, and he's like, Oh my God, did this is this happening? Like, and I didn't want to believe it because I thought, well, this is the only guy who can not only is he the only guy who I think can win, uh, beat Hillary, uh, but he's the only guy who like seems attractive, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And um, and Rubio blows up, and um the crowd, which was not favorable to Trump. I remember starts laughing scornfully at Rubio and then laughs scornfully at Christie, who has gone after Rubio and then is laughing at everybody and then Trump's on and they're not laughing. Now that doesn't mean that they like Trump because even when Trump won November, 2016, and I went on this national review cruise a week later, Jonah was on a bunch of us were on it. I would say that almost everybody on the cruise did not have Trump as a first choice. And a lot of them were very concerned that he had won. I mean, most of them had voted for him, and they certainly hadn't voted for Hillary, but they they were not Trump people. Trump had not consolidated that part of the Republican right, right. Party. And if you remember, you remember better than I, he didn't get more than 45% of the vote in the primaries. Uh, you know, and... He, he he because of the first past the post rules in in the Republican Party he you know he he took what he needed to take but he didn't do that well in the primary he did better than everybody else but he didn't do that well and right, right, he right. didn't like consolidate so but my my point is that Trump's takeover this whole thing was a kind of land slow acting uh, mudslide that really started around 2011 and just roll down the hill. And by the time the middle, by the time he became president, even after the election, by the time he became president and, you know, Paul Ryan had to make peace with it. You know, all these people had to make peace with, look, I was at, I I think you might even have been there. There was an event at the convention in 2016. There was a lunch with Paul Ryan and he, Paul Ryan was going through the three scenarios that were going to happen. One was Trump loses by three. The second was Trump loses by seven. Right. And the third <laughs> was Trump loses by 10. Right. There was no Trump win scenario at the Republican National Convention. It the did not look good for The Speaker of the House did not think that this guy had a chance. And then in October, he certainly didn't think he had a chance. I I would maintain that I would maintain that Donald Trump, no one was more surprised at Donald Trump's victory than Donald Trump. I think that he was, he was just as shocked as everybody else that he won. Uh, And we talked to some of our other guests about the demographic and da, 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 and turnout stuff. But for the political press, for the conservative media, we watched the never Trump or against Trump or how dare you, sir, uh, and turn into, well, the guy's got a point. This is what you're talking about, the mudslide. Yeah. Well, the guy's got a point. You know, there there are all of these poor, poor white people who are out there just being poor and white. And, you know, uh, being from West Virginia, I have certainly enjoyed 
over the past six years being lectured <laughs> by people who are from the richest zip codes in America about what real Americans really care about. And I'm like, oh, okay, I might count my yeah. count. My home county voted like 72% for Trump. I got it. I got it. So then we go. My, my for, home county cast 72 votes for Trump. That <laughs> yes, was New exactly, York County. Exactly. Okay, just to make that clear. So we, anyway, go from, yeah. we go from the mudslide to acceptance to then a kind of sycophancy that you would not have otherwise gotten, I would argue. Right. If Trump had come through the, if it had been normal, let's say, let's say Jeb Bush had been the Republican nominee and had gotten elected president or, or Ted Cruz, any of them. It would have been more conventional in the sense that voices on the right who were critical of previous Republican presidents, critical of George W. Bush, critical of his dad, even critical of Reagan. If you go back and look at the critical stuff, there was nothing on Trump, right? Once Trump went from uh, the orange devil to Mr. President, the voices of criticism went away. Is that right? Well, I mean, they... They didn't go away precisely. I mean, a lot of them really did migrate. They really looked at the election. They looked at what they thought. They looked at what happened and said, I guess this isn't my team anymore. I'm not yeah, yeah, on yeah. this team anymore. And they left. And then you have people like the dispatch, uh, me. I, I mean, we're not all that big in number, but who said, well, he doesn't get to define conservatism. I don't care. I don't care. You know, this is not something that's up for a vote. This is a this is a philosophical tendency, and it does not follow the election returns, unlike the Supreme Court, according to Mr. Dooley. Like, this is a set of uh, ideas, principles, tendencies, whatever you want to call it, that are fixed and immutable, and he doesn't really reflect them. And so you're not going to tell me that they don't work anymore because he doesn't, he, he's not a vo voice for them. How much does so? Yes, and and that is a hundred percent true. But how much does the market apocalypse that you described previously, where the great hopes of the of the late twentieth century have given way now to clickbait hell, uh, in which all the great ambitions of everyone have have been torn asunder, and Fox's uh, universe of potential market share keeps dropping as cable is dying and all of that stuff. So you have all these market pressures and then Trump, they go for it, right? How much it was market pressure. Do you think like, this is what's working. This is what's clicking. Go with it. Oh, I, I mean, I think an immense amount also among people who really didn't have that much market success. I mean, mm -hmm. or, or hadn't had that much market success. I mean, I think that probably the ultimate figure in this regard uh, if you need a paradigmatic figure, it would be somebody like Brad Brad Parscale. Yep, Trump, who had been a was a website designer, who I think has made hundreds of millions of dollars since 2016 because he was in Trump's ambit. And like, granted, he's not a media person, but he, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know. Uh, Breitbart, you know, the Washington, you mentioned the Washington Examiner. I mean, there mm -hmm. are like, there are, there are places caller. Yeah, that get tens and tens and tens of millions of clicks a day uh, because they fed this uh, inexhaustible, apparently, appetite. And see, the interesting thing that Trump understood, that really he did understand, that Obama was, I think, the first real example of, but that Trump understood to his marrow was 
play the celebrity, be the celebrity, and everything about him should be here. Now I'm going to really date myself. 16 Magazine. I don't even know if this exists anymore, but when my my sister read 16 Magazine when we were 17 Magazine, 16. 16 Magazine was win a dream date with Bobby Sherman. Oh, okay. Tiger What does Sean, yeah, right. What does Sean Cassidy like in a girl? Like this was what we would call clickbait now and was, you know, uncritical, worshipful coverage of cute boys for teenage girls. And that was the Trump press. And he, because of the way he handled all of his po- political life, the fact that he made his cabinet sing his praises while he sat there. Feel in the free Roosevelt to go around room. the table. You guys all just tell me your favorite thing about working for me. You go ahead. Yeah, That's how you do it at the was, magazine, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that you know, because you write for, you have to write, a, you have to write an, uh, a pen to me right, before exactly. I'll publish your, your I did mine as a so- I did mine as a sonnet to get in. A son- yes, uh, and it was very, it was 15 lines, but that's okay. El- elegant. That was uh, fine. The second, the 15th line was even better than the other. Exactly. Part. So the, the, this uncritical coverage, of course, helped Trump to lose. Yeah. Because unlike in the past, he didn't. George W. Bush had to be aware of what were conservatives saying and doing and thinking, and did he care? And Harriet Myers and all of that other stuff. With Trump, there was no there was no way for him to get a course correction. Be, just like Obama, right? He took a shellacking in 2018, and I didn't hear very many people. I I was saying it, you were saying it, but there were very few people who said, well, Mr. President, you got your ass handed to you in midterms, so you better do something differently. And that didn't happen. I mean, look, in January of 2017, when the Women's March happened the same weekend as the inauguration, and there were three and a half million people in the streets with those ridiculous knitted pink hats. I remember. I remember having to explain it to my children uh, poorly. (laughs) And, you know, I said two things at the time. I'm really, I don't consider myself a particularly prophetic person as my own account of my misunderstanding of Trump's rise should indicate. But I was like, you know, this is real. Like, you don't get three and a half million people in the streets. This is like the Tea Party, only maybe bigger. Trump has lit a fire under the people who don't like him that is not going to go out very soon. And he, doesn't have enough support, doesn't have enough support. He's at 46%. He needs to get more support. And what happened by 2020? He got 46.7%. He grew his support by, I don't even know know what that is. It's like uh, two-tenths of a percent or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, or, or it's higher than that, 3% or something like that. And 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 he needed to do a lot better. And uh, I think maybe a more conventional politician would have known that, that that's where his weakness came in and his lack of understanding, that the base was never going to be enough and that somebody who had run for office 10 times would know that in his marrow. If they would have put Donald Trump in a medically induced coma in July (laughs) of 2020, he still could have won, right? Yeah. He still could have won. It was that cl- it was that close that he still could have won, but yes, you're right. There was never there was never any outreach because the thesis of the Trump political machine was the same as the thesis of the right wing media, which is 
habituation and addiction among a narrow group of people is more valuable than diluting your brand by spreading it out all over the place. Because if I'm appealing to somebody else, then I'm losing my currency with the guy who's going to say, oh yeah, well, you're a sellout. Right. Well, look, the fundamental fact is that if you do a count in the United States of people who say they're Democrats and people who say they're Republicans, there are more Democrats than Republicans. So if you get 100% of Democrats to vote and you get 100% of Republicans to vote and nobody else votes, granted, there's a geographical distribution issue and all of that, way more Democrats are going to vote than Republicans. I'm not talking about liberals and conservatives because, in fact, the polls say something entirely opposite when you're talking about liberals and conservatives. There are more conservatives than liberals. But there are more Democrats than Republicans. So if you are going with a base strategy that is I hate everybody that's not my deepest supporter. Uh, you you may turn them out, but everything you say is making the 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 number of people who are bigger than your people. Mm-hmm. You're going to make them drag themselves over broken glass to vote mm-hmm. against you, and that was always the error in the strategy. <laughs> like it's never made sense because he didn't seem to understand that everything he did had an equal and opposite reaction, only the reaction was not equal. It was unequal. It was worse for him. He solidified his base, and he triggered enough people who might otherwise have stayed home or might even grudgingly have voted for him right, right, to go, right. I just can't deal with this anymore. I can't we, take it anymore. And we see it in the, we saw, we saw it in the results. If we look at Nebraska, if we look at Maine, we look at Georgia, it's, it's, it's evident. So uh, a closed media landscape opens up in the 1990s. Conservatives like Sooners in Oklahoma flood into the space uh, and experience great success in serving an underserved market. Over time, the competition, the changes in the market and the changes in technology and changes in other things leave such a crowded market space that to stand out, you really have to get crazy, right? You really got to go for it. And the lesson that a lot of outlets took was we got to go for it, right? The the, the half measures will avail us nothing. We must go, you know, we got to go all the way in. So now that it is clear that clickbait won't work. And it's clear that cable news is not with us for the long run. This is a we're this is a twilight time. Um, what the heck happens next, sir? What happens now? Look, there will always be political coverage. There will always be political commentary. There will always be some version of this. What's striking about this moment is that you you you've now you've laid out a very interesting description of a thousand flowers blooming mm-hmm. and now it's you know 30 years later and 995 of them are dead that's mm-hmm. that's what a thousand flowers bloomed and for very complicated reasons they didn't all survive right they most of them didn't survive and the lesson that has been taken is precisely what you say which is you know we need to grow it. We need to, you know, we need to, we, we need to solidify our position, you know, in, in this kind of deathmatch octagon that no one else is entering. And to my mind, the great mistake that has been made here is that the conservative, uh, 
let's say fleeing from the from the middle leaves liberals who are not li- who are not in the middle they are far to the left of where they used to be in control of the middle that's that the great irony here is that because the right sold itself to trump the left gets to occupy the middle and the left again and 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 i don't know you know the the end result of that is going to be parlous for the right and 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 i don't know i i let me just put it this way Biden's got this infrastructure bill. It's like three, four, five, six, twenty trillion dollars, right? <laughs> we don't know what it is. There is everything about this bill that can re- can literally reestablish the right in a post-Trump era. Everything about it. There'll be there are things in it that will enrage normal, ordinary people. Budget busting, inflationary pressures, pays off, paying off to unions, tax increases, you know giving people money to buy electric cars. I don't care what it is. It's everything that can reassemble the classic Republican coalition on on firm evidentiary grounds and good politics and all this. But I'm just not sure how the message gets transmitted anymore. I'm not sure who's gonna who's gonna be the tribune to lay this out for people. Where who is the Rick Santelli gonna be to create the conditions under which there is a grassroots revolt that brings in people who might have voted for Biden because they couldn't stand Trump anymore because they're not going to like this bill. They don't want the, you can say to people, okay, we had to spend $2 trillion on coronavirus relief. They don't think we should be spending $170 billion buying electric cars for rich people. Are you kidding me? But somehow that message has to get out and I don't know if that it's going to get out if what we're going to be talking about is 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 Lil Nas X's set satanic shoes. <laughs> not I, not I, that I don't think that's a real thing to talk about. It sort of is, but you have to be able to talk about both. I don't know uh, all most of the words that you said in in that. Uh, I know them individually, but I don't know them in a row. Uh, so I will leave it to you as as the as the uh, culture maven. Uh, that, that, that is, that is a resonant reference. Um, last question. What is Donald Trump's role in the media world? How credible do you think the threat is that he is a ongoing media figure? Is he personally going to be there or is it just that, that energy, that, fifth or so, uh, fifth or fourth of the Republican Party that has always been Buchananite, that has always been a culture warrior, that the people that liked him in the first place, what's going to happen? Is is Trump part of the conservative media landscape henceforth, or is something else? I, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I am surprised by how little a role he has taken since the election. Now, it's two and a half months since the election. So you can look at that and say, he's licking his wounds, he's getting his energy back, he's sort of taking a break, trying to, you know, like stay back and figure out what his next play is. And, you know, maybe he'll, you know, go off, you know, like like drink some energy drinks and eat some (laughs) protein bars and come back 
full strength or or this really did you know uh michael dukakis or kitty dukakis described the defeat dukakis's defeat in 1988 as a public death i don't think anybody who has gone through what trump you you can't know what it could mean to be rejected on this scale and maybe he thinks he really won and it's all a lie and all that stuff i don't believe that i don't believe it doesn't know that okay but it doesn't matter let's say he one way or another he was there and he's not there anymore right and um you know that can that can just punch a hole in your spirit that just doesn't doesn't really quite recover I was thinking about this in relation to George H.W. Bush, you know, whose defeat, I, as I told you, I wrote a book about. So he becomes president. He loses. But here's who George H.W. Bush was. And he was somebody I did not really admire politically. But um, he was a young man. He goes off to war. He fights 58 combat missions. He watches his friends. You know, he, he crash lands into the water. He sees people eaten by sharks. He sees his friends die. He comes back goes to college, gets married, he loses a daughter to leukemia, he raises a family, he goes through this, he goes through that, he becomes president, he has a rich, deep life, and he wins the presidency, and then he's president, and then he loses it. But he has had this wealth of personal experience and this rich tapestry of human life. And there's Donald Trump, who is a jerk. He's a jerk. And nobody loves him, and he doesn't love anybody. And, uh, you know, George W. Bush managed to live a wonderful last 20-some-odd years, 25 years of his life after the presidency, cosseted by his family, admired by people once once his defeat no longer stung the way it stung before and all of that. And who is George? I mean, who is who is Donald Trump? I'm I'm sorry to put it this way to people who like him. He's an awful person. He's soulless and mean and horrible. And he's sitting there like the unredeemed Scrooge. And I don't know that you come back from being the unredeemed Scrooge once the world has rejected you. All that you say is true from a characterological standpoint. All that you say is true in regard to that. But the right wing media didn't exist in the way it does now when Bush lost. Uh, and it was celebrate Bush's defeat was in fact celebrated by many on the new right, uh, yeah. of 25 years ago, like just desserts. Like I say yeah. about my father voting for my father, uh, every lineal dis- uh, antecedent of my father had voted Republican since 1856, except for in 1932 when my grandfather voted for FDR, which he never forgave himself for. <laughs> Uh, and my dad went and voted for Ross Perot yeah. in 1992. And so there was a good deal of satisfaction uh, among the energized right. Uh, and also, there was no money to be made in talking about George H.W. Bush, right? You couldn't just say, boy, he's back at Kenny Bunkport uh, running the cigarette okay, boat around again this okay, weekend. Let's talk about money then, because there okay. was this story earlier this week, interestingly enough, in a Trumpian publication called American Greatness about where the money went that was raised after November 8th to contest the election, right? $250 million, okay? Appalling. It turns out that most of that money Trump can keep. Yes. As long as he declares it as income. Yeah. So here's what I would say. Maybe he wants to keep the money. He can only keep the money if he he leaves politics because he would need the money 
to run in 2024, but he can keep it as long as he declares it as income, or maybe he doesn't declare his income because he's used to not declaring things declaring as income, income, apparently. This, this is true, and it's also true, though, that he might succeed if he could keep a couple. If All you need is a couple million people who you've duped to a sufficient degree that they'll send you 50. It, the, the Newt Gingrich model of uh, telling little old ladies uh, in trailer parks in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, if they don't send you $15 right now, that you can't stop the, un, the slaughter of the unborn. Right. Uh, so there's certainly a grift model that will sustain Trump. My question, though, is, there was no interest in covering George H.W. Bush. There was no interest in covering George W. Bush after the presidency. There was no interest in any of that stuff. There is interest, and it's left and right, but we're talking about the right. There is interest in covering and talking about Donald Absolutely. Trump. Absolutely, there's interest, and we all have it. I mean, we're talking about him now. We'll talk, right. you know, he's in a figure of endless interest, right? Um, so the, that, but you do have this weird phenomenon, right, which is, Trump was Boyd supported and his candidacy made possible in many ways by the decision of people like Jeff Zucker at CNN, no mm-hmm. conservative, to ballast his candidacy, covering it as though Wall-to-wall. he were yep. the risen Christ. And uh, right. here it is, minutes away from next Trump speech. Right? Joe Scarborough. Whatever. Yeah. And right. there was a lot of that. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. So they're now on the they're on a on a knife's edge because. They may want to do that because it's still there and he's still who he is. And yet he's not supposed to be allowed to tweet. He's not supposed to be allowed to have his voice on Facebook. His daughter-in-law can't interview him on Facebook. Facebook will delete any effort to run the audio of the interview that Laura Leia Trump did with him because he's a force against democracy. Does Maggie Hagerman write five stories a week about him from now until 2024? Or do they deliberately decide that they are going to choke him of oxygen and choke his future of oxygen? Because the right may want him, but he needs the let he needs he needs the interplay of the left. The left needs to keep him hoisted to say, here's the evil monster that we want. So he can say, they say I'm an evil monster, you have to vote for me. Yeah, it's I the Palin effect. Right. I don't know that they're going to be able to do that. I, I think that this devil's bargain they think that they struck in 2015, 2016 in making him president, uh, they there is going to be a conspiracy of silence against Trump if he really comes back hard to play a public role. They are they are going to choke him of the oxygen, I think. And that's one of the roles. They're going to reassert their role as gatekeeper by saying, hi, we're the New York Times. We are now more successful than ever. We got 6 million subscribers. You're not going to see Trump's name anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you something. There is no one in America I could have had this conversation with better than you. And <laughs> you really are You're generous with your time, number one. And number two, you've seen it. You've been there throughout. And I think the, take, the big takeaways for me – uh, one thing that you really brought here, I hope people take away the parallels between Clinton and Obama and their reactions to their shellacking, the, the shellacking reaction, uh, and also this left, the, the mirror effect, the mirror magnifier on Trump. So you have taught us, you have been generous with us, and we are grateful. Oh, thank you, Chris. You bet. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.